Father, we come and we, uh, we bow down before you, recognizing that you are Savior, you are King, you are our Creator, you're our Redeemer, you're the beginning and the end. We're there when we were conceived and we'll be there when we die. We will stand before you. So we pray that uh, our hearts are rightly aligned with you rightly aligned with your word and your spirit. And we pray that uh, you would show us mercy by revealing your heart to us, your heart for lost people, your desire for us to pray, pray like Paul did, pray like you did, Jesus, that we would pray for those that you have brought into our circle of influence to make difference for eternity pray these things in jesus name amen all right well we're we've been studying romans chapter 9 and and uh we've been answering some questions romans 9 obviously raises questions why don't you turn your bible there to romans 9 and 10 because we're in romans 10 verse 1 today but you see in your notes it says there's some lingering questions left over from romans 9 now When we looked at Romans 9, there were at least three philosophical questions that were raised as we looked at God's sovereignty over salvation. I don't know if you uh, can remember those, but let me give you those real quickly. Paul deals with all three of them. And anytime you talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, these are are the three things that are ultimately going to come up. First of all, is God's sovereign, unconditional choice fair? Is it fair? that God chooses unconditionally those who will receive salvation? Paul answers that, and he dealt with that. Secondly, does does God's sovereign, unconditional choice lead to fatalism? And isn't that fatalistic? Fatalistic? Does what I do matter? How can God hold me responsible if he is that sovereign? And we saw in Romans 9, 19 through 29, uh, Paul dealt with that. Now, he may not have dealt with it the way we would like for him to deal with it, but uh, but he does address it, and he does give a God-centered answer. And then the final philosophical question that's addressed in Romans 9 and we dealt with was this. Does God's sovereign, unconditional choice eliminate the need for faith? Well, those are the three. Fairness, fatalism, and faith. And, and those are the things that we've already dealt with. But there's practical questions that may be still lingering, that we still need to address. And specifically, I think there's five practical questions that people often have in response to the doctrine of unconditional election. In fact, I know they do because some of you at the end of last week came up and asked me these very questions. And I said, hey, that's exciting that you're asking that because next week Paul's going to address that. The lesson is going to address that. So let me give you these. And basically it comes out of this. If God has already decided who will be saved, then is there any need for pain over the plight of of those who are perishing? Is there any reason to be burdened? Is there any reason to be grieved? The idea there is, is why be burdened for the lost if God has already decided? Is there any need for pain? Secondly, is there any need for passion for the lost to be saved? I'd write out to the side of that desire. I mean... Should I be concerned? Should I be passionate about lost people getting saved if God has already determined all these things in eternity past? Number three, is there any need to pray 
for their salvation? Is there any need to pray? And that's what someone asked me last week, and I said, hey, that's a great question. Should we intercede? Should we pray for the lost to be saved if God already knows what's going to happen? Fourthly, is there any need to preach the gospel to them? There has been those in history who have so emphasized God's sovereignty and salvation that they said, we shouldn't even preach. Why, why preach to them? We don't even need to preach. If you remember the story of William Carey, uh, he was with a group of pastors in England in the 1800s, and he had gathered them together, and he said, look, guys, we need to band together as pastors in order to send missionaries to the lost. And the famous uh, uh, legend says that uh, one of the pastors said, young man, sit down. If God wants to save the lost, he will do it without our help. Okay, so why preach? And that brings us to number five. Is there any need to passionately pursue the salvation of all of lost people? In other words, missions. So when you look at that burden, is there a need for a, why, why have a burden for the lost? Why desire the lost to be saved? Why intercede for the lost? Why evangelize the lost? Why have missions? For the lost. That is, those are all five practical questions. And if you wanted to sum it up into one question, it would be this Is there any need to passionately pursue the salvation of all peoples through prayer and preaching of the gospel? Well, very quickly, Paul's already dealt with the first one. Should we have any pain over the lost? He's already dealt with that in Romans 9. Turn back to Romans 9, 1 through 3. Yes, here's Paul right before he teaches this deep, mysterious, hard to understand chapter on sovereignty. Here's what he begins with. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. My heart hurts. I have heartache for lost people because look at the next verse for i could wish that i myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my brothers and i'm meaning my kinsmen according to the flesh my fellow jews who have rejected christ who are hell-bent for destruction my heart aches i have pain i hurt now let's talk about why they have rejected christ and he goes into god's sovereignty so he's dealt with that and if you want to rehash that if you want to relearn that then go to lesson six in this series entitled burdened heartbroken for the hellbent you can get it download it the notes the message at glenwoodconnection.org but here in romans 10 turn to romans 10 1 in romans 10 1 he addresses two more of these practical questions the question of passion and prayer the question of passion and prayer is addressed in Romans 10.1. Let's look at what he says. Brothers. Now, here he's not referring to his physical brothers. He's referring to his spiritual brothers in Christ, men and women in Christ, who have been called out of both Jews and Gentiles. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Now, I know it's early Sunday morning. I know you're thinking and, and still waking up and digesting your coffee and all those good things. But I want you to just stop and, and, and take a moment and think. Here this man has just taught 
these truths of God's sovereignty, of unconditional election, that God is sovereign over salvation. And the very first practical thing that he does after teaching that is what? Silence is profound. What's he do? He's praise. He prays. So, you know, and I love Paul. He answers our questions, but never in the way that we expect him to. See, why, if God is so sovereign, why should I pray? Hey, I, you know, we all, I've struggled with that. You've struggled with that. I'm not making, I make, I'm not making fun of that question, but I'm saying, we, we, you know, we, tell me, tell me. And you know what Paul does? He doesn't tell you. What does he do? He prays. He just, he prays. He says, this isn't something, in a sense, it's not really something we discuss. It's something we just, what? We just do. And here's what I suspect as I dive into this lesson. I suspect the reason that most of us right here in this room this morning may not be praying for lost people to be saved has nothing to do with God's sovereignty. I fear it has more to do with our apathy. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be interested in the question. Some of you asked this question last week. It's a great question. And there's a reason why Paul models prayer right after this, because he is a It's a sincere question that deserves a sincere and scriptural answer. But please understand, the reason that most of God's people are not praying uh, for lost people, or let me say it in a more positive way, those of God's people who do not pray for lost people, it's not because they're struggling with God's sovereignty. It's a heart problem. And I think it's profoundly amazing that in this chapter on God's sovereignty, where we have scraped the Milky Way, right, of the profoundness of God, that at the beginning and the end of the chapter, Paul has, Paul reveals his heart. Paul reveals his heart. Now, I think that tells us something about a high view of God's sovereignty. A high view of God's sovereignty leads to a proper heart towards lost people. If, 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 you, if your understanding of what we have been teaching has drawn you away from a heart for lost people, then either I haven't taught it correctly or you haven't listened correctly. Because Paul says in Romans 9, he goes into it with a broken heart and he comes out of it with a praying heart. And that's when we know we have understood God's sovereignty and salvation. And I would say any view of salvation that does not lead us to, to our knees is an improper understanding of salvation. Because I think sometimes we think this all depends on my presentation of the gospel. It, it, some of us are silent this morning because we think it so much depends on me. And it so much depends on them that I don't want to offend them, therefore I say nothing. I don't want to lose them. It's, it's all about proper presentation. When in fact, if God's sovereign over salvation, risk going out there and doing your best, even if you think your best is not good enough, that's okay because it doesn't ultimately depend on who. Doesn't depend on you. And yet God wants to use you. And so, so let, let's look at this. Now, the preaching and the pursuing, Paul will deal with in Romans 10 as well. But we will get to that in the weeks to come. Today, here's what we're going to do for the next two, two weeks. We're going to learn from the Apostle Paul how to passionately pray for lost people. 
We're going to learn it from God's word. And we're going to learn this, that there's absolutely no conflict between the sovereignty of God and compassion for lost people. Paul knows the danger of letting God's sovereignty over salvation become an excuse for apathy and inactivity in praying, proclaiming, and pursuing lost people. That's why he, he stops and he says, Brothers, I want you to know this is how I pray. But I think Paul also knew the pain of being falsely accused of being unloving, unfeeling, and uncaring just because he so clearly taught God's sovereignty over salvation. You see, when you teach God's sovereignty like we have been teaching from Romans 9, many will say, oh, that will make your heart cold. Oh, that will cause you not to evangelize. Oh, there's no need to pray. And I think Paul understood that because, see, Paul taught that God had rejected his people Israel. And I think those rejected Jews accused him of saying, you don't care. You're unfeeling. You're uncaring. You're unloving to teach this kind of doctrine. And Paul wants to correct that and to show in verse 10. And he does it by revealing his heart. You have in your notes there, there's a great contrast or a great uh, uh, comparison. It's not a contrast, but it's actually a complement to each other. Romans 9 and Romans 10. Look at this man's heart. And in between is this teaching on God's sovereignty. In Romans 9, we see a pain-filled heart. He shares his personal pain over lost people. But then in Romans 10, we see a passion-filled heart. He shares a passionate prayer. In, In 9, we have an aching heart. In 10, it's an asking heart. In nine, it's a grieving heart. In 10, it's a giving heart that gives itself in prayer. In nine, it's a sacrificial heart. He has these profound words. I would do it if I could. If I could die in their place and go to hell in their place, if I could do it, I would. That's a sacrificial heart for lost people. But here in Romans 10.1, and I won't bore you with the Greek grammar There's a a particular way he phrases his prayer where he says this, I will it as much as it depends on me. If, you know, in other words, this is my wish. This is my will that they may be saved. But I know ultimately it's not my will, but his will. I, I, it's amazing. He just surrenders his heart to God, but he doesn't do it without emotion. He doesn't do it without caring. And so in nine, we have a burdened heart. Paul is heartbroken for the hell bent. But in 10, we have a believing heart where Paul passionately prays for those who are perishing. So today we want to focus on the praying part. And here, if, if, you, if you forget everything today, I want you to remember this. Prayer is where God's sovereignty and our responsibility intersect in intercession for the lost. You want to know where God's sovereignty and our responsibility intersects? When it comes to the salvation of lost people, it intersects in prayer. And so I want to give you this morning four principles for praying for lost people. It's from verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The first principle that we see in this single verse is who Paul prays to. Who does he pray to? He says, pray to our sovereign Savior. Pray to our sovereign Savior. He says, my prayer to God. Now, just stop for a moment and think about this series that we've been studying. 
The God that Paul is praying to in Romans 10.1 is the same one he has been repeatedly quoting in Romans 9 that says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is my choice that my purpose according to election may stand. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will harden whom I will harden. In other words, listen, rather than thinking this, if God is that sovereign, why should I pray for the lost to be saved? That's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is this. If God is that sovereign, who else would I pray to for the lost to be saved? Listen to this quote. Alva J. McLean. He's a, a great uh, Bible student, study of, student of the Bible. Here's what he says. A wonderful e- encouragement emerges in this first verse in contrast to the preceding chapter. When some people are shown what Paul has taught in the ninth chapter, they're apt to say, there's no use to pray if God does as he pleases. If, he's a, if he is a sovereign God, what's the use of praying? You can't change his mind. But actually, he says, The sovereignty of God should be an incentive, not a discouragement to prayer. Listen to this. The only kind of God who can answer prayer is a sovereign God. If God were not sovereign, we would all be doomed right now. When I see a man that looks absolutely hopeless, I can pray for him exactly because my God is a sovereign God who does not have to give that man what he deserves. For that reason, the Apostle Paul did not show any inconsistency whatever between what he taught in the ninth chapter and what he teaches in the tenth. Who else are we going to pray to the lost for? Let me give you five reasons why we should pray to our sovereign God. Why should we pray to a sovereign God for the salvation of lost people? Number one, we don't know who God unconditionally elects to salvation in his hidden will. We don't know. We know God does it. He has revealed that he does it. He hasn't revealed who it is that is elect. You can't walk around. And in fact, some who have overemphasized the sovereignty of God actually tried to do this. They would say, you should never preach the gospel. You should never share the gospel with anyone until you have assurance or some evidence that they're elect that that god is working in their heart now that's just getting the apple you know the cart before the horse you know evangelism is hard enough without me figuring out you know what god's already working on you god's already i mean if i'm going to figure that out what are you going to end up doing you're going to do exactly what these people did they just never ended up sharing the gospel they never listen we don't know turn your bibles to deuteronomy 29 29 Deuteronomy 29, 29. But let me, as you're turning there, let me say this. I think some of us, while we don't believe that, I think some of us, that's practically how we determine who we're going to witness to. We wait to see, oh, they're not ready. We wait to see, are they open to spiritual things? We wait to see, and we stand as judges on whether they are ready to hear the gospel. Now, I I understand wisdom is involved, and I understand all that, but listen, friends. The Great Commission says, go, make disciples. 
The Great Commission is to share and sow the seed abundantly. We are not to be soil inspectors. We are to be seed sowers. So let's look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. Very important verse. The secret things belong to who? The Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to who? To us and to our children forever. Why? Why have they been revealed? That we may do all the words of the law. Here's what he's trying to say. What God hasn't told us is his business. What God has revealed is our business, and that's what we ought to do. God hasn't revealed who he has chosen, just that he chooses. But he has revealed what? That we should pray. Therefore, we should pray to him. And that's, that's really, uh, and I think I shared this earlier in this series, but it's worth repeating. There's a popular story that's told about Charles Spurgeon, who was a great champion of God's sovereignty, and he was a great prayer warrior, and he was a great evangelist. And here's what he supposedly said. If God had pa- painted a yellow stri- stripe up the backs of the elect, I'd go through London lifting up the coats and preaching only to them. As it is, he is not. So I preach the gospel to all, and God brings his. Good. The point is, we don't know about God. uh, 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 We don't know God's will. Uh, What we don't know about God's will shouldn't determine what we do. What we do know and what is revealed is what we should do. Number two, we do know what God commands us to be and do in his revealed will. We do know. We do know what he commands. We don't know what he doesn't. So look at First Timothy. Turn your Bibles, First Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 6. One of the clearest commands in Scripture to pray for all lost people. To pray for all lost people. First Timothy 2, 1 through 6. In fact, in this book of First Timothy, Paul is addressing... Timothy as a church planner, as a church organizer, as a church leader. And he's saying, look, out of all the things I'm going to tell you to do in this letter, here's the first thing I want you to do. In fact, I had a professor at uh, Liberty in college who uh, said, uh, he asked the entire class, what should be the first thing you do if you're going to start a church? And boy, I mean, that was back in the, you know, early, uh, in the, back in the early 80s. And so there, some people said, start a bus ministry. And others said, start, uh, you know, going door-to-door visitation, get you a prospect. And we just said, people were saying things right and left, and yet not one person said what Paul said. He said, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Here's the first thing you ought to do. Establish a prayer ministry. Here, notice what he says. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for who? All people. That includes lost. For kings, and that, that referred to the, the most sinful, hardened Roman Caesars at that time. For kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Who desires all people to be what? Saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we should be. We pray. Listen, we got this all mixed up. We pray for a peaceful life so that we can be happy. And he says we should be praying for a peaceful life so that others could be made holy 
through evangelism and salvation. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So there's a a very clear command that corporately and individually we ought to be praying for lost people. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Our missionary, Peter Hayes, two weeks ago on a Wednesday night, gave a report and an excellent uh, lesson and an excellent teaching on this verse. And notice what it says, Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. Why? That God would open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which we have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. In other words, pray that I have opportunity to witness to lost people. And then he goes on to verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. The key to open doors open hearts and open mouths for the gospel is prayer. It begins with prayer, but it doesn't end in prayer. It can, when you really are praying for lost people, you will have a heart for lost people and you will begin to witness to lost people. And instead of just going through your day and looking at people, you will see, you know, where's that movie? You know, I, I, I see lost people. This is what happens when you pray. You go through life and you go, I see lost people. I see lost people for whom I should have a heart. So we do know that God commands us to be and do. He commands us to pray. Number three, we do know that God ordains the means as well as the end. We do know that God ordains the means as well as the end. The reason we pray to God and the reason we share the gospel with the lost is while he has predestined who will be saved, he is also predestined how they are saved. And guess how they're saved? Through prayer and sharing the gospel. That's his, he is predestined before all the creation of the world. Not only who will be saved, but how they will be saved. And that's our part that we play. We don't get to do the choosing. We get to do the praying and the preaching. Okay, pretty clear. You say, where is that in the Bible? Romans 10.1. He just taught unconditional lesson, and now he preaches or prays. And then later in chapter 10, he will say, how will they hear unless there is sent a preacher? So there he is. God ordains the means. Number four, another reason why we should pray to our sovereign God is we do know that Jesus taught his disciples to pray for for things that only God knew, pray for things that only God knew about, and that he had already predestined to happen. See, it's not just salvation that we're talking about here. How does the how does the Lord teach his disciples to pray in Matthew 6? Jesus taught them to pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, sovereign, holy be your name. You are totally set apart. You're absolutely sovereign. You're absolutely holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who's in charge of when the kingdom comes? God is. Has he already predestined when the kingdom is going to come? And who knows besides him when the kingdom is coming? 
Only, only God knows. So here's Jesus saying, I want you to pray for something that God's totally sovereign over. I want you to pray for it, even though God only is the only one who knows. But what I want you to pray is God's going to bring this kingdom through your prayers. Now, here's a wild thing in Revelation, and I forget which chapter it is, but uh, in, at the end of Revelation, when the kingdom is coming, John sees an angel who takes an, a, a censer full of the incense of the of, 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 of the saints. It's the prayers. It represents the prayers of the saints. And he casts that down on the earth. One day, all these prayers that we are praying for his kingdom to come, our sovereign God, at the time that he determines and through his power, he's going to take those prayers and it's going to accomplish his purpose. There you go. It's the same way with salvation. God has chosen. He's sovereign. We don't know who those people are. That's his knowledge. But he has told us to pray for something that's already determined. And yet we don't know about it. And he's going to use those prayers to accomplish it. Same way with the salvation of every individual. Number five, we do know that God's champions, both in the Bible and in history, biblical and historical champions, prayed for the lost, especially those who were strong teachers of God's sovereignty. Here's the reality. The reality is this. The Apostle Paul is one of the strongest champions of God's sovereignty, and yet you trace Paul through his letters. This man could not write a letter without praying first. This man couldn't finish a letter without praying in the middle of it. This man couldn't end a letter without ending it with prayer. Have you read his letters lately? Now, how many of us can tweet all day long, but not with a heart of prayer? How many of us can update our Facebook status all day long and not have it saturated with prayer? You see, this man who exalted God's sovereignty also was a man who prayed constantly. I, I just, it, it just, it, it's not a contradiction. It's only a contradiction in our misunderstanding. David Brainerd, one of the great American missionaries to the American Native Indian. William Carey, called the father of, Amer- uh, of modern missions. Adoniram Judson, who, by the way, February 6th is the 200th anniversary of the first sending out of American missionaries and the missionary movement on this continent. All of these men had a high view of God's sovereignty. And read David Brainer's journals. Read William Carey's life. Read the book on Adoniram Judson. And these men were, they prayed. They prayed to their sovereign Savior. So that's the first principle. Pray to our sovereign Savior. Here's the second principle we see in Romans 10.1. Pray to our sovereign Savior for the lost. Pray to our sovereign Savior for the lost. Now you say, that's obvious, but... but I, I, perhaps it's not. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Now, stop and ask yourself, who is he praying for? Go ahead and use your thinking caps. Let's, let's, who's he praying? He says, for them. Now, some of your translations cheat and tell you the answer. Okay, they supply it from the context. It's not there in the, he says, I pray for them. Who's he praying for? 
Okay, the Israelites. How has he described them in Romans 9? How? Lost. How lost? Very lost, Jeremy says. Are they hardened? Are they hardened? And, and who hardened them? God. The, uh, we're praying to God for lost people. This, listen, the nation of Israel, the majority of which are not only lost, unbelieving, but they're hardened by God's sovereign judgment. He says, pray for them. So let me give you three. What's he praying? He's praying for lost people to be saved. I know that's obvious, but I want you to put that down. You say, oh, that's obvious. So let me ask you this morning. I know it's, it's, it's I, I, let me get in your face a little bit. So do you? It's so obvious. Do you? Do I? Are you praying for lost people? Paul did. Number two, Paul prays for lost people who he knows are hardened as a nation. He knows they are hardened. The very people God had rejected, he now reaches toward praying that they might be saved. We get our heads started along one line and can think of nothing else, but the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to present two sides of a truth like this in order that we might understand and be encouraged to pray. You know somebody hardened in sin? What's the, the hardest thing to do for a hardened, someone hardened in sin? is to persevere and pray for them. Why? Because what's so evident about them? The hardness of their heart. And we want to go look for the soft, tender heart. Paul prayed for a hardened nation that he knew God had sovereignly hardened them because of their hard hearts. Prayed for them. Number three, Paul prays for all to be saved. He doesn't, notice, Paul does not pray to God for just the elect. Or just those, God, I just pray for those that you have set apart. The rest deserve condemnation, and I rejoice in them being sent to hell. That's not what he does at all. He prays for them. He prays for all to be saved, though he knows only a remnant will be saved until the final Gentile is saved, and then Jesus comes again to save the entire nation. Look at eleven twenty-five through 26. Jump ahead to chapter 11, Romans eleven twenty-five through 26 he says here's a mystery for you and this is the mystery verse 25 lest you be wise in your own sight that he's talking to the gentile christians whether you get puffed up in the sense of we accepted the jewish messiah and the jewish people they just don't have a clue and listen folks if you'll saturate your mind with this we may not be concerned about jewish salvation but we think this way This kind of thinking creeps into our thinking. Well, we accepted the gospel. Why can't all these secular, worldly, ungodly people I work, why can't they see this? He says, don't be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Partial because some Jews are still being saved. And who's the greatest example of it? The Apostle Paul. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until, until what? Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Do you realize that the hardening of Israel was so that you as a Gentile could hear the gospel? And so Paul is praying, Lord, I pray. As he prays for all of Israel to be saved, he's praying for every last Gentile whom God has chosen that they would be saved as well. He's praying for the whole world. He's praying for lost people. So I think that's sufficient.
to understand that we should pray for lost people, no matter how lost they are, no matter how hard they are, no matter what God has already determined, our job is clear. Pray to our sovereign God for lost people. Let me give you seven reasons why we should pray for the lost. Now, I'm just going to zoom through these because, because this is what I'm thinking on. This is what I'm dwelling on. Why should I pray for lost people? Listen, the reason we should pray for them is we have two Low a view of sin. We don't understand how lost lost people are and how lost we were before we got saved. So let me give you seven reasons. Number one, because revelation is filled with commands to pray. We've already seen those. (laughs) We pray for lost people because we've been told to by God. Number two, because rebellion is embedded in the DNA of uh, the heart of lost people. You understand that resistance to the gospel, rebellion against God is in the DNA. I can't reason someone out of their sin. I can't argue someone to Christ. I can't persuade someone enough that they are a sinner and God's the only answer. I can't do that and neither can you because rebellion is embedded. In fact, in Ephesians 2... One through three, it says that the lost are in bondage to their sin apart from the gift of God's grace. And in 2 Corinthians 4, three through four, it says the lost are blinded by their sin to the, uh, blinded by their sin to the good news of the gospel because of Satan. Blind. Now listen, I'm up against a heart that's in bondage and eyes and understanding that is blind. And the only way it's going to come through is through prayer. Number three, pray for lost people because resurrection of the spiritually dead is impossible with us, but God can do it. You know what? Lost people are called, they're spiritually what? Dead. And the only way you're going to come alive is through what? Being resurrected. Now, there's a lot of people surrounding Lazarus's tomb three days after he was dead. So dead, that the scripture says he stinketh in the King James. There's still reason to quote the King James for verses like that. He stinketh. Stinketh. No modern translation can quite capture that. They're surrounding his tomb. They are weeping. They are mourning. Jesus comes and all he says is what? Lazarus, come forth. Boom. You and I could shout that for the rest of our lives. And he wouldn't move. Okay? Just this morning, reading through my ESV daily reading guide that I'm using this year, read Mark chapter 5 this morning. A little girl had died. Jairus, his father, her father, had come to Jesus. Jesus being detained by the multitudes and the woman with the issue of blood delayed his arrival and they came and they said, she's dead. Don't bother. Why? Because death is humanly impossible. And Jesus came anyway and they're mourning and they're wailing. And he says, what is this commotion about? This girl's not dead. She's sleeping. And she goes, he goes, and all he says is, little girl, get up. Now, those of you that have kids, we can't even get our kids out of bed when they are sleeping. I mean, little girl get up gets repeated numerous times in our house. I don't know about yours. 
but this gal's dead. And Jesus says, little girl, get up, and boom, she's up. That's why we pray, because he can raise the dead. Number four, because repentance is ultimately a gift that God gives. Because repentance is ultimately a gift that God gives. Read through those verses that I have there for you. We repent, but God grants it. God, it literally says in Acts chapter 531, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. So I think this is awesome. God gives repentance and yet here's Paul praying for it. Number five, because regeneration is a gift that has come from above. See, we... That phrase born again in John 3 can also be translated born from above. But born again, born from above, the point is this, just like death, resurrection, we can't cause any we can't cause birth. And we think in our technological age we can overcome infertility, but I don't care what you do to conceive, in the end God is the one who regenerates. God is the one who provides rebirth. Number 6. Redemption is from the Lord. Redemption is from the Lord. It's really that just that simple. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that anyone may boast. Number seven, because requests like this are answered by our majestic, merciful God and His sovereign Savior. Now, I wish I had the time to explore Acts chapter 7, chapter 8. In chapter 9, because in those chapters, it tells the story of Stephen, who is witnessing to some hardened Jews. I mean, they're described, they are gnashing their teeth. They, and he calls them, he says, You stubborn, hard hearted people. Well, they did what stubborn, hard hearted people do when you call them stubborn and hard hearted. What do they do? They throw rocks at you. They killed him. And as he is dying, as he is being stoned, he says, Father, don't hold this against them. And one of those hard-hearted Jews who was holding the coats and approving of those who were throwing stones was a Pharisee with a hard heart by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And he goes on a rampage of murdering Men, women, and children just because they believe in Jesus Christ. And yet, his, Stephen's prayer in chapter 9 gets answered because a sovereign Savior stops Paul in the midst of his murderous hate and says, why are you doing this to me? And he says, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? He says, I'll tell you who I am. I'm your Savior. I want you to be saved and serve me. And his life was changed. And his life was changed. And now he's praying for his fellow Jews, who he knows have hard hearts just like he once did, and yet God can sovereignly save some. And so he prays for all. And that's why we should do that as well. Number three, third principle that we get from Romans 10.1 is this. Pray to our sovereign Savior for the lost to be saved. He says, my prayer to God for them is for, literally he says, is for salvation. This is what I direct my prayers to. And, and, and let me help you with this. Whatever you pray for your lost friends, 
it should all be directed towards one thing, salvation. So we can get lost in praying a lot, but everything we should pray for should be towards one thing, salvation. This is their great need. The word that Paul used for prayer here is the word that's always used for a specific need. And he says, when I look at lost people, I see one specific need. They need to be saved. And I'm going to pray to God about it. Number four. Fourth principle is this. Pray to our sovereign Savior for the lost to be saved like Paul did. Pray to our sovereign Savior for the lost to be saved like Paul did. I want you to go back to Romans 10.1. I want you to see one of the most important words in that verse is the first word. And what is that word? Brethren. Brothers and sisters in Christ. It speaks of his Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, whom God has unconditionally chosen, graciously called out of both Jew and Gentile. We know that from Romans 9. He's, he's once again making a distinction between him, his spiritual family, and his physical family. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should never take delight in lost people being hardened in their sin. We should be heartbroken for the hell bent. Brothers, sisters, I cry out to you. I show you my heart so that you can examine yours. And then he says, brothers and sisters, we should never be indifferent to lost people. We should passionately pray for them. And so I'm letting you in on my prayer. I'm letting you in on my heart. So that you can pray like I do. So that you will have a heart like I do. So I point you to the Apostle Paul. I point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I point you to those who are heartbroken or the hell bent. I want to be that model for you. I'm growing in that. God is growing me in that. God is starting to give me to where wherever I go, I see lost people. That is motivating me, driving me, encouraging me, and delighting me in sharing the gospel. This is a global prayer, and it's an individual prayer. So I think the right thing to do is to end in prayer. So let's pray. And as I pray, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. Actually, two things. One thing I want you to do. So I want you to think about the lost people that are in your circle of influence. In your circle of influence. And I want you to think of some of the most hardened ones. Some of the ones that you, let's just get honest, you think they'll never get saved. They'll never get saved. They're not ready to hear. I want you to think about them. And then the second thing I want you to do is join your heart with me. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived, died, who rose again, who is seated at the right hand and is coming again to save your people from their sin. And we ask you, God, that you would remove the rebellion in the hearts of these people that we interact with on a daily basis. 
that you would overcome their resistance. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the gift of a repentant heart and a receptive mind. I pray, Lord, that you would enable them to be born again from above as they respond to the working of your word and your spirit in their heart and life. I pray, Lord, and rejoice that redemption is from you. It's a gift that you give to the undeserving, like these folks that we know, like we once were. And Lord, you are the sovereign, merciful Savior of all peoples, even these hardened people that we're thinking of and praying for right now. Lord, we make these requests in obedience to your revelation and to your commands to pray for the lost out of a heart that is broken. Lord, we pray out of hearts that have been radically transformed by your grace and the gospel and the love from you and from your people. Lord, our heart's desire this morning and our prayer is for the lost people that you have brought into our lives, for them to be saved. And Lord, as we pray this this morning, we rest in the name of Jesus Christ, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And we pray for the salvation of the lost for your glory, because it's from you and of you and through you. And we pray it for our joy because there is joy when the perishing turn to you. And Lord, we pray it for their good because the greatest good is to have a right relationship. Sins forgiven, heart transformed. So we pray it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.